Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett. Today, we're joined by Nadia Reisland, Professor of Psychology at Durham University, and by Professor Jackie Blissett, who's from Aston University and is a Professor of Psychology. They have just released an amazing paper that's got a lot of interest um, because they've been looking at the changes in utero of fetuses in response to food and smoking and anxiety and depression. And I have the two major authors here and, and of course their team that have put this paper out and they've really nicely given up their time to tell us all about their findings. So thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks very Lena. much for having us. <laughs> And this is the first podcast where we're doing three people at once. So I'm going to do my best to not interrupt today because I then tend to do that a little bit because I get a bit excited. And so what we're going to do is going to ask questions and that we're going to try and answer them one at a time and so that the audience isn't um, annoyed <laughs> with me. Um, but anyway, thank you. So let's start with Nadia. And I, I just love your, I love this paper for lots and lots of reasons. And obviously it was named four-dimensional or 4D ultrasound scan to look at how the environment Im impacts a growing fetus inside a mum. And then looking at how the environment, like what they can eat or, or how they're feeling or smoking, et cetera, can then impact that fetus. But this technology is allowing us to actually see it. So would you like to tell everyone a little bit about this advance that happened and your contribution to that? Yeah, um, so 4D ultrasound is basically 3D imaging with a timeline added. It's like a film. And what we do is we uh, scan with ultrasound scans uh, mothers, uh, pregnant women, and then we can analyze fetal movements. And what I'm doing is I have developed a system called the fetal observable movement system. And this is actually called observable because as the technology gets better, we can see more and more and more. This system is just looking frame by frame at a number of movements. Like we look at touch behaviors, but also facial movements. So like the muscle movements, uh, and we then uh, put together like uh, a timeline or a profile of uh, these movements in order to see whether fetuses might be influenced by various things. For example, maternal stress and depression have an influence on fetal movement profiles. And in this case, we looked at whether giving the mother a capsule of kale, which is very bitter, or a capsule of carrot, which is non-bitter, whether that made a difference to the fetal facial expressions. And what so, we can do is we can put together, you know, we can put together the muscle movements. And then this is what I call a gestalt, because I wanted to make sure that people know, we do not know whether fetuses have emotions. So when they are grimacing, are they feeling unhappy? We really don't know. I've told a lot of people who kind of have asked me about that. If you were, be, if you were to be hit for the first time by a very, very strong taste, what kind of expressions would you make? Most likely it would be also grimacing. And there's actually research, postnatal research um, by Oster, which is a really old study in 88, where they looked at newborn babies and they got sweet tastes. And what you can see is they grimace for the first mouthful and then they smile. So, I mean, like the grimacing doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, well, it means, something completely new 
So um, this technology, this capacity for us to be able to, and this is something Jackie might talk to, has really changed the ability of people to be interested in academic work in some sense. Um, you were talking a little bit about that. Do you want to describe how you would have published these results without the actual facial scans of the people because you can now, the babies, and that how that has changed? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, 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 the capacity to actually image the uh, facial movements of, of, the, of the fetus is, oh, that's obviously at the heart of our design. And that, those are the, the movements that we count. We can only count because of that, that imaging capacity. But I think what it's also done is it's really helped to translate the findings that we have as scientists about those specific facial movements that we would have predicted from postnatal, neonatal um, reactions to tastants um, from, from those frequencies, the graphs that we produce, for example, those, those are really meaningful for us as scientists, but to actually look at the images of the fetal faces, I think really helps to illustrate what it is we mean when we talk about these particular gestalts. Um, so I think so it's for, really helped communicate. So for, for people that haven't read your paper yet. Sorry, it's really helped communicate the findings. <laughs> so so uh, basically what we're saying is that if you can see it and show the images to parents, they will be engaged with it. And that's what I find when we do our ultrasound scans. Um, even the fathers, often the fathers are reluctant to come to these ultrasound scans. But once they have actually seen their baby or their fetus, you know, their unborn child, you can see how excited they are. And the next time they're very keen on coming, okay? So when we do several studies, one after the other, you know, to kind of see the development, what we find is that as soon as we get the parents engaged in the scans, they're actually really, really happy to engage with it and see it, okay? Yeah, and Jackie, um, in terms of people that haven't read this paper, what was the main finding of the kale uh, and versus the carrot on the fetal expressions? So we, we, um, we were hypothesizing that we would see the similar um, types of, of, of facial movements in the fetuses that we see in that uh, postnatal um, period that Nadia was just talking about. So we imagined that when we uh, gave the um, mums a, a kale capsule, we might see those bitter uh, grimaces, if you like, um, and, and when we gave the carrot capsule, well, actually, I think our hypothesis was a little more, was a little less um, sure there, we weren't quite sure what kinds of expressions we would get, but we were certain they'd be different from the kale. And that is indeed what we did show. So if you could, if you look at the images that we have in the paper, you can see, um, well, you can see from the graphs a greater frequency of uh, what we call a cry face uh, gestalt when the fetus is exposed to kale. So they show this kind of uh, reaction that you'd expect from a, from a bitter flavor. 
when they had the um, when they were exposed to the carrot, they showed greater frequencies of what we call uh, the laughter face. So it, it looks uh, like a face of uh, enjoyment. Um, you can see the kind of uh, it, it look. It looks as if the fetuses are uh, enjoying the, the flavor more. As Nadia said, we can't actually infer their emotional state from this, but it's a really good mirror of what we see in the postnatal phase and do you want to add to so that when they get the when they get the carrot basically they have got a more relaxed face and it looks a more smiley face it's much less complex the facial expression for the smiling compared to the grimacing or, or a cry face a carrot as a cry face means you have to move a lot of muscles in order to make this cry face whereas for the smile face you're very relaxed and your mouth just goes up you know so it's very few muscles which have to move so are you a bit shocked by that finding in some sense? Like you'd expect people, eating people always ask me. <laughs> no, people always ask me whether I'm surprised. Uh, well, I mean, like I wasn't because we had hypothesized that we would get differences. And I've done a lot of research with facial expressions of the fetuses and I can show how the facial expressions become more complex over age, even in the fetus who is not exposed to anything, you know? So they are actually making loads of facial movements, which are then adaptive for postnatal life. You see, so when they come out, what you get is they can imitate, for example, you know, and they can also, and I have done a study where I showed that just minutes after birth, just, I mean, I caught the babies and then I did imitation that they can imitate. So where does it come from? It's something which we already can see is, starting to be learned in the womb you know yes and there's so we a lot weren't of, surprised that we found facial expressions there's a lot of evidence that uh, the brain's pre-wired you know even as it's developing it's already inherited a lot of uh circuits and other things from your parents and your great grandparents and other people so is it is there a lot of variability in in the ability of fetuses to be able to imitate um, so, you know, because they, they're showing this with some people that have problems with, you know, you know, on the autism spectrum or other places that they might have trouble imitating, copying. Yeah, sorry, I don't know about the autism spectrum, but when I looked at mine, what I found is that um, just after birth, they are very able and all the babies were very able to imitate. Right. But when you wait a little bit, you know, so for the next day, uh -huh. it seems to be going down. So it's actually the time difference. And then right. they start again to kind of um, imitate after so that. So interesting. Um, Nadi, you're also well known for your work in smoking, depression and anxiety. And I know when I mentioned your paper and that I was so lucky that I was going to get both of you, I was so grateful that I get both of you on the podcast. Um, I had many friends that, because I'm a parent and have friends that are parents and they just diet this and me too personally to think about everything that happened while I had babies in utero of the things I was doing during that time related to my work or all sorts of other things uh, yeah, stress and depression and everything this is life okay so I don't think parents should be guilty at all they have to live their life and I always talk about the two patient model what is good for the fetus is not always good for the mother and vice versa so the mother has to kind of live her life basically 
and then decide on what she does in order to kind of get the best start in life for the fetus. And it's very much up to the mother, you know? So, I mean, like I'm very much for the mother deciding what she wants to do. So even though I'm very, very much against smoking, of course, because it's really bad, I still think that those mothers who smoke do it for a reason. And I feel that it's really important that we help these mothers, that we support them. Like some mothers said, for example, the only time when I have got a little bit of respite is I go out and smoke a cigarette. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to give respite to those mothers, they wouldn't go out for the cigarette because they mm-hmm. would have the time of a little break. And yeah. I think there are loads and loads of things like that, you know, that you should actually support the mother. And governments should support mothers because basically that's the next generation. You mm-hmm. want a healthy generation of people. And the more you can support mothers during pregnancy, the better it will be. Absolutely. And the other thing which I always say, which is really, really important is when the mother feels depressed or stressed or anxious, she should not feel guilty. She should actually go and get help. That's why we kind of show it because we show that if you do that and if you kind of just hide it and kind of cope with it by yourself, it's not very good for the fetus because you can see these different movement profiles, which then of course translate into cognitive differences. Do you mind uh, going over that, those results a little bit for, for the audience about what you found? In terms, I know you looked at fetal movements. Um, I wasn't sure, I wasn't aware completely that you translated that into cognitive differences. Well, like for example, we uh, looked at um, visual stimulation and sound stimulation. And uh, we found that when the mother is kind of um, stressed or when she is depressed, we get different results for example, for sound stimulation. And that's the reaction of the fetus to sound, which which we kind of show, okay? The other thing is uh, with regard to visual stimulation, we also found that even though fetuses discriminate between, we had a smiley face, which we projected onto the fetal eye, you know, and stripes. And we found there were differences between the smiley face and the stripes reactions, you know, so they reacted more to the smiley face than to the stripes, but it was really dependent on whether they were depressed or not. So depending on maternal stress or depression or anxiety levels, you actually get differences in behaviors in the fetus, which then of course translate into cognition, because if you think about their reactions to certain stimulation, that difference is then shown. And uh, the reason I'm talking about this is because we, we often talk about, um, there's a lot of emphasis on getting to earlier childhood education and thrive by five and naught to three, but, it, but I'm trying to bring the message that it's way before zero. Uh, um, there's a, you know, once the, when the, as soon as the first cell is born, it's a brain cell. And, you know, everything's springing from there and it's already predetermined in some sense. So what you're discussing is demonstrations through imaging that, that, exactly. these, that these things are actually real and happening and are impacted by the environment, which is epigenetics, right? So Exactly. Epigenetics, really, really important. But on the other hand, again, coming back to the maternal stress, depression or anxiety and feeling guilty about it. They should not feel guilty. That is life, you know. Basically, the fetuses survive, babies survive. They become kind of 
able, and then Jackie can of course talk about what yeah. happens postnatally much more than I can uh, in relation to taste. But I mean, like, it doesn't mean that everything is completely fixed. You can yeah. also change it with time. But yeah. the best life, the best start in life is of course very much dependent on that the mother has a good pregnancy as as good as possible, you know? So Jackie, do you want to I'm add? really worried. I'm really, I'm really worried about all these mothers who are pregnant in war zones, for example. Yes. What effect that has on their fetus is just, I mean, I find that really, really worrying. And people never talk about these pregnant women, you know? I, I just feel that it's kind of really bad. Yeah. Jackie, do you know much about the postnatal effects and on taste? Well, yes, there's a, the, the, this literature was what motivated us in the first place that there, there is um, both uh, sort of observational literature that suggests, for example, parents who or mums who consume a wide range of foods during pregnancy have uh, babies who are more accepting of those foods. Um, and there is also some experimental work that has exposed mums during pregnancy to certain flavours and then looked at the um, outcomes postnatally um, and suggested that flavours that a fetus is exposed to regularly through uh, a maternal diet or indeed through breastfeeding um, uh, are more accepting of those flavours later. So we, we, we knew that there was some kind of effect of that prenatal environment on later food acceptance but this was the first way that we could actually look at what is actually happening in real time to those uh, fetuses when their mums are experiencing those flavours. Um, but as Nadia said, it's exactly the same with food and, and, and eating. So, so um, lots of people have been in touch with me since the publication of this paper saying, oh no, my diet in pregnancy was terrible. Or um, for example, I, I felt really sick and I couldn't eat anything apart from toast. And mm -hmm. you know, what has that done? And again, these, these feelings of guilt um, and and anxiety that they've set their babies on on the, on this terrible trajectory, and of course that's not true. It's not as simple as that. There are multiple multiple effects, both genetic and environmental, on our um, food acceptance. And probably the most ex most uh, powerful of these is exposure. And exposure can happen at any time. So yes, it's fabulous if you're able to afford. Um, a really wide range of health of healthy foods during your pregnancy and you're well enough to consume them but if you're not that doesn't mean you have fixed your baby on this terrible food acceptance trajectory you can still expose them um, through for example flavors th from breast milk or indeed through the flavors that you introduce through complementary feeding and even if it's all gone terribly wrong um, into childhood we still know that exposure two flavors and textures uh, can be beneficial throughout life. So even as a teenager or even as adults, we can learn to accept things if we, if we uh, consume them regularly. So it's never this fixed trajectory. And I totally agree with Nadia. I couldn't agree more strongly that guilt is really not going to help in this scenario. All that we can do is find out what does work for who and when and make sure people are as best informed as they can be to make the best choices they can in the situations that they find themselves in. I'm really grateful that you said don't feel guilty for someone here that I don't know why mothers get feel guilty 
<laughs> I don't know why we lean into guilt. Well, because I, I know they're always blamed. It's always the yeah. mother who's blamed. When there is something wrong, it's the mother's fault, which shouldn't be the case because fathers play a big role. You know, if the father supports the mother, the mother is in a much better stage during pregnancy. I mean, there's other research which has shown that, you know. So having support of the father actually helps the pregnancy. So, so let's, don't let's, blame the mother. Let's talk about that, shall we? Um, let's talk about what that support would look like um, for mothers out there dying to get some or for fathers wanting to know how they can because sometimes they feel powerless to know what they should be doing. Uh, does anyone fathers have any... can Fathers can give the mothers like a good diet. They could do the cooking, for example. Let the mother rest, you know, when she comes back from work and they do the cooking. That would be one thing. <laughs> and taking brain breaks. Yeah, I think... Breaks. Yeah, I think it will vary, won't it, for, for each family and, and um, you know, what, whatever works for whatever works for you. But to, to, to approach this as a, as a dyad, the two of you uh, creating and, and growing this, this healthy environment for the baby. The other thing I'd add is, of course, it's not just about that dyad of, of mum and dad. No. A lot of the influences are much broader than that. Their family, community, um, culture, they are government um, influences. So, you know, the, 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 the um, challenges that many families face um, are, are so uh, difficult that actually things like nutrition or whether or not mum has eaten some carrots today are so low down in, in, in people's anxieties that, that, you know, these things can be lost when you're worrying about the rent or the or you know how to how to pay your bills so it, it, these these kinds of uh, governmental interventions are, are, can also be really important yes and uh, i don't want to make it a dyad that's for sure because every experience is so different people are raising children in completely different ways um as well which is and good you know like i it's really important that the mother or the parents of the community actually raise their children in the way they think is right for them it doesn't mean that what we think is good is actually the best kind of way of raising them. I mean, I know I had mothers who would kind of put their children in front of television. I'm very much against that, you know, but I mean, like I would never tell the mother this is bad for your child because that's a way which she kind of coped, you know? And mm -hmm. I think it's really, really important that whatever culture you are in, that you kind of stick with that culture. And that's also true for the kind of taste you know, like depending on in which culture you are kind of growing up, you might be eating vegetables, but you might be eating other things, you know. And so it depends on your cultural background. And this is the way the child already learns, the fetus already learns about the environment in which they are going to be growing up later. So they get acceptance of the food, which is like the normal food in their culture. So if it's fish based, then they might be preferring fish. If it's curry-based, they might prefer curry afterwards, you know. But that's important because it's cultural difference. Yes. And um, but this brings us to advancing um, knowledge and education because your scans and your research are helping people still that want to think about ways that they can uh, make a difference. I think too. So like educators and the public and, and I completely agree with what you're saying, but it's also good that we can keep 
the science keeps evolving and expanding and unfortunately the textbooks take a long time to change but us mm. we're, we're being able to bring this to the public to say um, you don't need to feel guilty or anything but if you're capable and able these are some of the strategies that might be useful to think about because you can go and look at your like um, Nadia's going to give send us a YouTube link which I'll send to you that she gives out to parents do you want to describe a little bit about how that's helped people so the YouTube video is like about other research. I didn't have uh, the research on taste in there, yeah. but it shows what the fetus can do. And for example, I show on the YouTube when the mother says ma, 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 that the fetus <laughs> is actually moving their mouth. Wow. Ma, ma, ma. wow. And that's nice, you know, because there you can see, like I sometimes ask fathers to play their preferred music and you can see the fetus jigging to that music, you know. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of, that is amazing. It makes a difference just to engage them with the pregnancy, you know. Yes, um, and that's what I love about the the technology and the research. It really allows us to be able to see something we can't normally see, because you can't see it, and so you don't know all of the things that might be happening. And I think that's the beauty of this four D scanning and the techniques that you've built off that. That's just fundamentally game changer in my mind, which I think it's also gaining a lot of interest from many people. Um, so. Uh, Jackie, you're also an expert in eating behavior and fussy eating, I see. Um, and everyone finds this as a, something that they're interested in too. Would you like to just tell a little bit, uh, tell the audience a little bit about what you do in that area and how you help, do you help children that are fussy to become less fussy in their eating? Yeah, so, so a lot of our work is trying to understand the interaction between um, what we call individual differences um, and the environment to determine outcomes. So everybody varies in the degree of fussiness that they have. Even as adults, we vary. <laughs> yes. It's just that nobody forces us to eat our vegetables anymore. Yeah. Um, so what we're interested in is, is those individual differences. And those might be in, for example, taste sensitivity. Um, so going back to our, our study that we're talking about um, in this um, in this podcast, we, you know, one of the things we haven't been yet been able to do, but we are interested in doing next is looking at the taste sensitivity of the mothers, which varies genetically, um, and the fathers and, and seeing whether we can see variation in that taste sensitivity, even in utero. But importantly, again, what we're interested in is, well, what do you do with those babies who are fundamentally born predisposed to that fussiness? So that might be through taste and sensitivity mm -hmm. might be through other sensory sensitivity it might be through um, uh, 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 for example um, uh, autistic spectrum um, uh, type conditions can make a difference to food um, acceptance so what do you then do with each of those types of child to facilitate the best kinds of outcomes because different children with different uh, barriers to food acceptance require different interventions. So we're working on a variety of things. Generally speaking, um, as I said before, it, it tends to be that exposure um, is the most productive um, uh, gen generally um, of, of techniques for increasing people's food acceptance. But there are things that, that help other children. So for example, children who are very sensorily sensitive, you could see this right from uh, early in life. So they're the babies who don't want to touch sand and um, don't want to touch grass. Those babies can often benefit from just what we just, um, uh, for example, desensitization. So just, just, the, just the being around food, the smell, the, the, the 
the touch of food can make a difference to food acceptance for those babies. Mm. So there's all kinds of things like that. And some, of course, some people, some families will require professional interventions. So some of our work looks at those more formalised interventions to support families for whom feeding has become really problematic and really, really, really challenging and yeah. stressful. And um, so, so obviously those kinds of interventions um, are very different. So we know quite a lot about preventing food fussiness um, uh, uh, and we, we are working now on looking at what, what we're doing best for those families where feeding and food has become really difficult to, to manage. So can I just ask, when you say exposure, is that like just them seeing it and then and you're eating it so they have the opportunity to try it um, if they want rather than you making them try different things kind of thing? It's a Absolutely. So, yeah, what you're talking about there is, is, is modelling as well as exposure. So we know exposure on its own works. So even if nobody else in the house is eating it, <laughs> if, the, if the child is gaining exposure to it, perhaps at nursery or at school then they're more likely to accept it but modeling is uh, that would be my second most powerful um uh predictor for for many children um if you if you want your children to eat uh food you need to eat it yourself and some of our most recent work has actually suggested that if you are smiling while you're eating it they might be more likely to accept it so again on the facial expression the power of facial expression one of my phd students just uh, published a study looking at the the power of a, a smiling model so somebody who's yeah. smiling whilst eating broccoli actually facilitates children's acceptance of broccoli <laughs> um so there's lots of little tricks like that that you that you can use but yes the the, the exposure in particular for, for for babies and children it can be visual it can be um it can just be olfactory so smell it can be texture all of these things help to improve familiarity and when you get familiarity that's when you reduce the anxiety about putting that thing in your mouth and then the child is most likely to to consume it and we know that there are some foods like the fetuses in our in our study some foods do elicit for most of us that kind of uh, response yeah. <laughs> the, the, the kind of initial dis, distaste response but gradually over time we can learn that that it, you know it, it isn't going to poison us or it, it has some um, pleasant taste characteristics and then we learn to accept it yeah so Nadia can I just ask you as someone that's seen a lot of scans of all sorts of different things and fetal movements um, I know you don't mm -hmm. want to guilt anybody and we really appreciate that but what are the top three things you'd say that you'd highly recommend trying to not do? Um, I, yeah, I find it very difficult because basically I feel that it's the mother's prerogative to actually say what she wants to do during pregnancy. Yeah. I'm very, very keen on saying that it's her choice. Now, if it was me, okay, yes. I mean... I don't think alcohol is a good thing to have during pregnancy. So I would kind of avoid what alcohol. Seen, what have you seen with alcohol? Have you done any studies with alcohol? I, I haven't done the studies on alcohol, but there's a lot that alcohol actually makes a difference to how fetuses develop. Yeah. And I would think like, yeah, not having alcohol, if at all possible, not smoking, I would say. And absolutely not e-cigarettes I would really say please stay away from e-cigarettes you know and then the other thing is 
enjoy your pregnancy as much as possible. <laughs> I mean, I know, like we did a study on hyperemesis, and so mothers felt really, really sick with that. And it had an effect on the fetuses. Uh, and it, I mean, we, we could show that. But also, uh, we are just trying to get published uh, research where we looked at the mothers with hyperemesis compared to mothers who didn't have hyperemesis playing with their babies. And if you look at the mothers, the mothers are very lovely. I mean, there's no kind of resentment. You know, people sometimes think, oh, well, if you had such a bad pregnancy, you don't like your baby. That is just not the case at yeah. all. Yeah. But there are differences in the babies. Like what we found was that they were much less able to um, not look at the mothers. They were as much looking at their mothers when they had hyperemesis or not hyperemesis mothers, you know but actually uh, um, concentrating on a toy. So playing with a toy, like a soft toy, or actually reading a, tech, a, a picture book. So they had problems with kind of actually uh, uh, focusing on this kind of thing. They would be looking away, would be much more like uh, um, likely to kind of not uh, be focused on something which then of course it's important in terms of later schooling you know you need to focus in order to learn to read and things like that you know but it's like very young of course and as Jackie said you can change things of course you know but yeah. this was an effect so it wasn't the mother's showing the difference but the babies seem to show the difference. Can you just expand on the e-cigarettes? Because um, before we came on, you were telling well, the me the e-cigarettes, like the reason why I'm so much against e-cigarettes, and I know that the NHS gives them out because, of course, e-cigarettes don't have all these additives which are toxic uh, to the body. The reason why I don't want e-cigarettes is because uh, the e-cigarettes have uncontrolled amounts of nicotine. So mothers do not know how much nicotine they consume. When they smoke, they know I've got one cigarette, two, three, four, five, you know, so they can actually count. And you then can identify how much nicotine went into the uh, placenta. And it stays in the placenta for much, much longer than in the mother's bloodstream. So mothers crave this nicotine and it stays in the placenta and it changes brain structure. Lots of research has shown, especially with animals, basically, um, that uh, nicotine changes the brain structure. And I suppose this is your area of research as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah, well, um, we, we showed so sugar, sugar does the same thing as nicotine and alcohol. So I was going to ask you about that, about sugar as well, if you've seen anything there from, because sugar's in some... Well, I mean, like... We gave uh, uh, these capsules, okay, and they were calorie controlled. So we wanted to make sure that the mothers wouldn't have, or the fetuses wouldn't be hit with a sugar rush, yes. rush you know. Like, but from our experience, um, there are mothers when the fetuses would be asleep, you know, or not moving very much, that the mothers would kind of um, have um, a Mars bar or something to eat, you know, some sugar, and then the fetus would be active, you know. Yeah. But the same is true for like for actually giving a cold glass of water that wakes them up as well, you know, wow. so basically, yeah. So, I mean, again, it depends on the mother's diet, you know, so it's a good idea perhaps not to have too much sugar, have healthy food, you know, but of course the mother needs to enjoy her pregnancy as well, which I think outweighs the fact of saying, oh, I will deprive myself of chocolate, 
you know, like I just think it wouldn't be a good idea to do that. Right. Um, so can I would I, say, can I, that, I, yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, tricky not to interrupt. But yeah, I, I'd add to that, that that for most healthy pregnancies, um, certainly because we're interested in obviously the um, what's happening typically in, in the amniotic fluid and in terms of taste, for most healthy pregnancies, the, the the kind of the sugars and the salts within the amniotic fluid are, are, are quite tightly controlled. And that's one of the reasons that we looked at uh, the bitter flavor because the, the, it, that had the capacity to, to transfer through into the amniotic fluid where we, where we don't think that the fetus is going to get the taste of sugar or the taste of salt varying in the same way that it might get the taste of some of the bitter compounds right. that come through vegetables for example so the effects of sugar um, on the fetus they, 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 there may be other mechanisms there but we're, we're not we're not convinced in healthy pregnancies at least that there's going to be much variation in the um, taste or flavor in the amniotic fluid as a result of of the of the consumption of sweeter foods but we don't know we, yeah. we don't know that for sure we've got to we haven't done those particular studies yet um, but that's that's just a, yeah just a, an, a, another you know th this stuff is complicated isn't it yeah. <laughs> it's complicated and we need yeah, we need more so, time to answer these questions exactly so I'm kind of talking about when I observe these scans and what are the effects on the fetus you see so it might be actually that it's the mother reaction to the sugar rather than yeah. the fetal reactions you know and we know that mother's reactions have a big effect on fetal reactions you know it could be that the mother eats the sugar. And then the fetus moves because of the mother's more active of course, metabolism. Yeah. You know, mm. yeah. Anyway, it's so fascinating. I just love it. And it, uh, uh, we already touched on this. And there was an amazing piece that just came out in the Guardian um, from someone in the UK talking about how we've got to stop call, pushing everything onto the individual and start. And you already addressed this, Jackie, and start to address the systemic issues that are driving a lot of depression, anxiety, and stress in the population and in pregnant mums and dads and people, um, you know, that are looking after, trying to look after their families, really. Uh, so what would you say is the biggest issue facing people right now, in your opinion? From my, my perspective, certainly here in the UK, and I think it, it applies in, in lots of contexts, is poverty. We, we are in a situation within the UK, which is, of course, theoretically a highly developed nation where um, almost a third of our children are living in poverty. Um, and it's continuing to rise. Things are getting worse. Food insecurity is, is, is rife. Fuel poverty is rife. Families are making choices between heating and eating. And that has a profound effect on children's mental and physical well-being, their social, emotional, cognitive development. There are hundreds of studies showing the profoundly damaging effects of poverty. And yet we have over four million children in the UK living in that scenario. And, and, and it's not surprising children living in poverty and families living in poverty are at that greater risk of poor nutrition, chronic disease, but it's a, it's a real challenge. It's a source of enormous frustration and, and sorrow, actually, I would say for me as an individual that that's become normalized. How can people make the kinds of choices that we're recommending as scientists when they're living in that kind of 
context you know how how can I sit there saying try and try and ensure you have regular portions of blueberry and and kale when people can't pay their bills I think it, it, it that that's a real challenge for the health and well-being of, of certainly of our nation um, at the moment yes and, yeah. that's the- and food banks don't have fresh food I know I try to get some fresh fruit into food banks and they don't stock fresh mm-hmm. food because it wouldn't keep, you know. So it's all tinned. And yeah. I mean, like, how can you tell these mothers and yes, eat healthily if you can't even have fresh fruit, you know, or fresh fresh vegetables? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then on the depression, anxiety and stress front, I mean, that then is a circle, isn't it? It's building. Yeah. And it's so- a really a vicious, vicious circle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a, a, a her name's escaping me right now, but um, she's had a lot of press from putting out there this plant analogy. Like if a pe- plant is wilting, you don't blame the plant; you change the nutrients that the plant's getting. Yeah, um, and um, changing the conversation, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here: is work out ways that we can change this conversation so that people can understand, you know, multiple ways of it. Uh, things that impact people's thriving minds, basically. Um, and one of these things that, that I enjoy and why I was so thrilled about your paper is the what you went, the effort you went to to develop that technology and the way to show people what they can't see in those scans. So as we're heading out to the close of the podcast, um, would you like to say, <laughs> Jackie, what's your purpose in life? <coughs> That's that's a really a really big question, isn't it? How long how long can the podcast continue? <laughs> um, it, people, people always... yeah, that, it really made me really made me think. Um, I guess I I guess what what gets me out of bed in the morning, and I suppose this this applies to both my professional life and my personal life is is food and family. So not necessarily in that order. Um, but food and family and I guess you know using my skills and expertise to make a difference to the chances of children having that good start in life through family and food um, that's certainly what what drives me in my in my professional life Um, but also can I I just ask you quickly why how did that happen what why did how did how did I how did I come well I guess just from the yeah, I mean, this is probably too long, too long a story for the for the end of the podcast. But through my psychological training, then I ended up for for a few years just working in forensic psychology and observing the, the very difficult life circumstances of many children growing up in 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 very very difficult um, scenarios. Um, but and then my and my PhD also was in um, eating behaviour and finding those kinds of um uh, those those links between what's going on within a family the kind of the the broader system effects obviously mm-hmm. but how those might be uh, facilitated by just better family functioning and better communication um better health and better nutrition um that that really sparked something i guess in 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 me for understanding you know how how you could small things can just make yeah. a, a big difference within family settings meal times being just one of those wow. um so yeah i guess that that's that's how it came to me and and you know having been somebody who's always been interested in 
in food and uh, um, uh, and eating. It was just a very uh, natural natural evolution, I guess, yeah. over time. And Nadia. Okay, so um, I actually started uh, my studies at the London School of Economics in social psychology. And the first year was just, you know, like quite weary. And I thought, oh, do I really want to go on with that? And then the second year, I learned about developmental psychology and I absolutely loved it. I mean, really, really loved it. And so, first of all, I started off, you know, like doing work uh, in Tottenham, you know, like with the football kind of yes. and things. <laughs> I have heard of that. So, older, older children. And I went down in age, you know, so I did like a study in the hospital, for example, looking at pain and fear. So all my work is in a way looking at uh, emotions. So I looked at pain and fear in operation. And uh, then I thought, well, these children already know so much, you know, and they were like three years old, you know. (laughs) So then I went down to like younger ones and looked at emotional development in them. Uh, Like in Oxford, I did like the study on, uh, well, my PhD is on emotional development. But again, like in families, you know, I actually looking at interactions of siblings and when can a newborn baby basically show pride and things like that, you know? And then I went down and thought, well, if newborns already or six months old can show pride, what is happening before that? So I went further and further down because I want to see the beginnings of things. Wow. And, and so, so that's how I kind of, in the end, I got into in Aberdeen. I uh, was in the hospital quite a lot and I met these people there where I could do 2D scans. And then when the 4D scans came around, I actually trained in fax coding, you know, facial action, uh, facial action coding by Ekman. Mm-hmm. And so then I thought, well, what he has done, I can also perhaps uh, apply to uh, the fetuses. Wow. And that's how I developed coding scheme. That's incredible. And the reason which I mentioned before yeah. why I'm interested in, I have always, always been interested in movement and and kind of, you know, like, looking at things very very specifically and that relates to my interest in art you know so I like I like life drawing where you have to be very precise in what you observe and um, I like to kind of present like movement and feelings you know in this still image basically. Mm. Well thank we're so lucky that you did all of that. Um, I What a great collaboration of bringing together great minds and that's what I love about science it's it's great when we do transdisciplinary work and help each other I think it's so much more successful and so much more informative but um, thank you both for what you've done to help people see something they couldn't see before and all I know what goes behind that is a huge amount of work and effort Um, and I think everyone listening will be really grateful that you made that effort for us and I love your message to people to that they are simply the best as they are and everyone's a little human trying to make their way in the world. Um, and these are just some simple little things that maybe you can think about if you, if you choose. So thank you very much for joining us on the Thriving Minds podcast. Thank you very Thanks much for having us. <laughs> Look forward to getting your feedback on this episode. And if you'd like to subscribe and let us know what you think about the podcast, that would be very helpful for us. We're really grateful to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to the Tuning 
for tuning in to the Thriving Minds podcast. Thank you and have a great time.